Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And Karen, I should give you a heads up. There's going to be three pictures in a moment, okay? I didn't give you a heads up beforehand. Uh, Many people have seen a connection between the Tower of Babel and the day of Pentecost. The readings, for instance, that we have today were not my choosing. This is just part of the regular lectionary series that we use. And so these people that put this together see a connection between this Genesis 11 and Exodus 2 or Acts 2 story. God scatters the people by confusing their language. And then in Acts, gathers them by the Spirit's command of language. However, there are some much deeper connections that can be made between these two events as we consider our life in the Spirit still today. I personally have frequently thought of the Tower of Babel as an endeavor to reach up to the realm of the gods in order to be more like God. But I learned recently that that actually might not be so simple. The people at Babel come together not simply to build a tower up, but specifically the text says to build a city and a tower. In ancient Mesopotamia, archaeology has unearthed a whole bunch of city and tower complexes. They go together as one in ancient Mesopotamia. And this structure, as we often think of it today, is maybe not what we would expect, because when we hear the word city, we think of a whole lot of people living together in one space. And when we think of a tower, we usually think of something that's taller than it is wide, for instance. Go ahead and go to the first picture, please. What was more common in ancient Mesopotamia is what is known as a ziggurat. This looks kind of like a worn-out pyramid (laughs) that's turning into sand and dust, sort of this large hill. And you can see a bit at the bottom there's some more cut stones being buried through this erosion as well. Go ahead and go to the next picture. This is the ziggurat of Ur. Um, Part of it has been reconstructed and rebuilt, and you can sort of see that this square structure is built around a hill or a mound of dirt. This is not like a pyramid in that there's nothing inside of it. It's just dirt. It's not to house anything. Uh, And so this is a large raised square platform usually made on a hill. Go ahead and go to the next slide. And this is a reconstruction of an artist uh, depiction, rather, Um, of the ziggurat of Ur back in its full um, structure. And so you can see it's sort of consecutively smaller squares built up like stairs up towards the top of the structure. Go ahead and leave it on this picture for a little while. A ziggurat is a tower. But more specifically in those days, they were considered to be stairways up to the heavens. The city at the base of a ziggurat was not for habitation. Archaeology has shown that these cities and structures around the ziggurat, it wasn't housing, it was rather structures for people to gather together to use from the surrounding area, administrative buildings, markets, and usually a temple complex at the base of the ziggurat. Now, when I say a stairway to the heavens, a ziggurat was not built for people to go up on specifically. It was actually built for the gods to come down on. They were usually built up on a hill or a mountain because it was believed that hills and mountains were closer to the realms of God. 
Those were sacred, sacred spaces. And at the top of the ziggurat, on this picture you can see there's sort of like a little building with a door in it. There was usually a bed and other amenities for the god that would come down, that it was built for. The hope would be that the god would come down, like and enjoy what was there, enjoy the bed and the amenities, and then decide to finish the ascent down the stairs to the temple to be worshipped by all the people that are gathering from that surrounding area. In Genesis, they say, let us build a city and a tower. And it probably referred to something like this, a ziggurat. Go ahead and go to the next slide. That's our last one. The other aspect of this story, though, I want to draw attention to is also the intention of the people. They specifically do this because they want to make a name for themselves and because they are afraid of being scattered. When we think of making a name for ourselves today, we usually, I think, think in terms of success, right? Financial success can make a name for ourselves. Awards, accomplishments, inventions, something that people will remember our name for years to come. In the ancient world, there was a similarity that making a great name was meant to be remembered, but for a very different purpose. Many in the ancient Near East believed that when people remembered your name after you died, it provided a more secure afterlife in the land of the dead. Your well-being in the afterlife was tied to your community and to the subsequent generations afterwards, right? You have to have more people living in that area to remember you so that your afterlife would be secure, there may be rituals that would take place at the burial ground as part of a larger community to remember the names of people so that in the context of remembering in this gathered community, those that have died would enjoy a greater safety in the land of the dead. This fits with the fear of being scattered as well. If they're scattered away from the burial ground, if they're scattered away from each other and subsequent generations, your safety for the future into eternity is entirely uncertain at that point. So to recap for us, the people desire to build most likely a ziggurat or something like it, possibly to entice God and God's presence and favor amongst them. And this ziggurat would be unifying for them. Right? Not a place that they would live, but a place that the community would gather around, work through, and around that they would worship in, specifically so they can make a great name for themselves and be remembered for the sake of security in the afterlife. God actually does come down, it says in this text, which oddly enough is what a ziggurat was for, but he is not happy with what he finds there. Instead, he scatters them and he confuses their language. And this is not God saying no to technological advancements like bricks or, or no to people around the world working together to accomplish something good. Rather, it is God putting an end to endeavors that are entirely wrong-headed and therefore dangerous for humanity. I think we can start to see a little bit of this as we consider the story that immediately follows this. It's the story of Abraham. God chooses Abraham, tells him to leave his homeland, which means leaving the burial ground, leaving the subsequent generations, leaving in all sense a sense of security regarding life for eternity for Abraham. It is asking him to lose safety. 
But he tells him that he's going to make Abraham and Sarah have a great name. Right? All of this language about names, security, and scattering is seen through the story of Abraham. But the greatness of their name at God's blessing is not for their sake. God doesn't say, go make a great name for yourself. He says, I will give you a great name. And you're going to leave this safety that you have. And in that great name, you are going to be a blessing to all people. You see, in contrast, the people at Babel, they're taking matters into their own hands. They're trying to create security for their own sake by making a name for themselves. And it's completely wrongheaded. And if this is how the people are going to function, God knows it's going to be a disaster. Imagine a world in which people are concerned only about their own well-being. Or even just about the well-being of the group that they identify with. Imagine a society when the most important work is creating a sense of security for the self, even if it means at the expense of others. Imagine a community in which what people gather around and what they pour their time and resources and creativity and knowledge into is creating something that will serve them and their own group's needs exclusively. Whether we recognize it or not, it's a terrifying society. One that will harm and destroy others in order to maintain safety. One God knows will end horribly And so he scatters the people, not because they're working together, but because they were working in a way that was antithetical to his blessing and his care for the world, a way that was self-centered. He wants them moving outward. Instead, he's not beholden to act through some ziggurat, but instead chooses Abraham and Sarah, makes them great, not for their sake, but so that they would bless others. This is the desire and the way of God. It's not self-centered. It's not self-preserving. It is ever-expanding mercy through humanity and for humanity who are made in his image. Now, what happens at Pentecost? God comes down again. And not for the security of a few, but for the blessing of all. This Pentecost event is the desire of God for a beautiful and thriving humanity that is coming into existence by grace alone in Jesus. And it stands in stark contrast to the work of the people at Babel. They were concerned about maintaining security amongst themselves, but instead God sends his son for the well-being of the world, foregoing all security. He suffers injustice. He is brutalized and murdered out of the desire of self-preservation of those in power, right? That is part of why Pilate does what he does. He is preserving his secure position. It's why the Sanhedrin does what they do in that story. And Jesus, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't respond to force with force. He sets aside all safety and he loses his life. Because he counts the lives of others as more significant than his own. That it is more important to provide for the lives of others, even for his enemies who are killing him, than for him to maintain his own comfort. And for all of this, God vindicates his son, and after bringing him back to life, Jesus pours out the spirit that we celebrate today. We have received the spirit of God as a gift 
by the Spirit of Jesus, our life is secure in the greatest way. Our life has been protected from the eternal effects of sin as he has declared you and me, all of us, forgiven. Our lives are blessed with the security of the resurrection, a security that does not lead us to self-preservation at the expense of others, but rather a promise that moves us to give all that we are and have for the blessing of others. Because even if we die in the process, even if we die in the process of loving our enemies, which martyrs have done for years in love for their enemies, God's going to raise the dead. And everything's going to be just fine. It means for us today that even if we lose some small portion of security, or even if we have to abandon some greater sense of safety, what is that in the light of the resurrection of the dead? Our life is secure in the promise of Christ today. And yet even beyond that, I I continue to stand in wonder at Pentecost because this gift of love that brings with it such comfort, comfort and ultimate safety for us, it's not about us. The end goal is not to make us feel safe, even though it does give that safety to us. Rather, it is given in order to empower us so that our lives would bless others empowering us to forego our own safety and comfort when others are in need, so that all would be blessed. When Peter quotes the prophet Joel, this seems to be emphasized. The Spirit is not given to a select few that day, so that they can have a great name and and feel secure in the favor of God. That sounds more like Babel. But rather, the Spirit is given to drive them out to people. The opening of the prophecy of Joel is God pouring out his spirit on all people. Spirit drives them to the people of Jerusalem there and eventually out into the world to the Romans and all nations, breaking through these boundaries of status and of barriers that they have set up. The spirit of God is for all people, young, old, men and women alike, breaking through whatever categories have been set up of what we think is Uh, breaking through expectations and the like as well. The Spirit breaks down boundaries between people that we have established with our categories and that we think separate us from one another of who is worthy or who should truly receive the Spirit, who is more or less human, who is more or less important. The Spirit of Jesus is being poured out on all people today, breaking through our categories, which we may have a lot of them today. The less able-bodied and the able-bodied, the CEO and the day laborer, all people regardless of whatever their gender identification may be, the uneducated, the highly educated, the Republican, the Democrat, the capitalist, the communist, the citizens, the foreigners, and everything in between. When Joel says the Spirit is poured out on all people, it is breaking through those boundaries that we have set up. Barriers that we put up between ourselves and others out of our desire for security. Because, you see, that's what self-preservation so easily leads to in sin. To barriers. It draws a circle around ourselves or around a group that we are willing to say is most like us. So that we can work together and pool our resources and influence to make sure we get the comfort and security and the greatness that we believe we deserve. But the Spirit keeps driving us out. 
Not simply to expand the circle, but to remove it entirely. You see, the grace of God is always more expansive than we might have realized. The moment we expand our circle of whom we protect and preserve, the Spirit points beyond that again to those still outside of the circle. It seems that Jesus desires us to stop thinking in terms of barriers and boundaries and rather to think in terms of blessing for every human being. The expansive grace of God, it does something to us. This isn't simply information that we just sit back and think, Oh, this is so nice to know. It moves us to act. The act of God drives us. The Spirit moves the people of God to step away from a sense of greatness for themselves, to step away from making a name for themselves and for ourselves. And rather, the Spirit moves us to seek to offer security and safety for others, to step into new ways of using our resources, using our influence, leveraging aspects of being citizens, our ability to voice and to vote, whatever it is that we have, even if it is uncomfortable for us or means losing some comfort we have, to work together for the blessing of all humanity, because this is what Jesus is doing, and we live by his Spirit God has given a great name to Jesus, and all who call on this name will be saved. Our lives are secure, and this is not for our sake alone. It is for the sake of all humanity, as we continue to live according to the name of Jesus that we bear, walking in the Spirit and offering his compassion and his good news to all. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.